0: Welcome, friends, people for peace, pods of consciousness, planetary citizens, wherever you happen to be today, listening to Glocal news in social artistry, where we get to talk to people who are building a more humane world from the inside out. I'm your host, Dick Dalton, and today my guest is a dear old friend out in Ashland, Oregon, Dot Fisher-Smith. Good morning, Dot. Good morning, Dick. (laughs) Hey, you're just about, what, five miles from Talent, Oregon, that that had a horrible fire? That's
1: right. We were very close to where the fire began. It began in a little field that we walked across. I think you've gone to the pond with me. Uh Did you ever walk to the pond? Well, you go through a field that belongs to the city that's kind of a bmx park that's never been developed it's a shortcut to ashland ponds a really beautiful pond and that's where we used to go you know every day it was like our morning walk and that is the spot where the fire started and because there was a raging wind blowing from the southeast to the northwest it was as if it was aimed at the mobile parks and the farm workers home areas in Talent and Phoenix. It just raged through there. It started there and afterwards I walked across that field and it stopped right at the edge of the field where the houses next to it at the fences of the backyards of those houses and it missed them and it went right along Bear Creek and all around the pond and all up the Greenway where the bike path goes and straight you know up Highway 99 right through Talent and Phoenix and just destroyed thousands of homes and people barely got away and it was it's a tragedy and I'm still hearing daily about friends that I didn't realize lived in that path and lost their homes.
0: Part of my problem here is we just don't have anything close to that situation. And I would like to feel more empathy, but I, I just, it's just so hard to realize the, the depth of, of what's going on there.
1: Well, you know, you can look at pictures and get a, a sense of it, but it's, there's nothing like actually seeing it or walking on the Hey, Dick, you were there when our house burned down in Wolf Creek. So, you know, you you knew what that was like. Yeah. Good point. You were young and foolish, though, at that time. So.
0: <laughs> yeah, that was uh, 1970.
1: 50 years ago. 50 years oh, ago. Oh, yeah? Yeah, it was my father's birthday. Oh. December 13th.
0: Oh, my. So you and I go a ways back. Uh, I'd like to briefly tell our listeners that my first trip to San Francisco by air was 1968 in January. And I had orders to Vietnam. And uh, I wasn't going to go to Vietnam because they were wanting me to carry a gun. And I just wanted to be a hospital corpsman and not carry a gun. So I was told to, to visit the War Resisters League office down on Market Street, which I did uh, immediately after I, I got in, settled at the base, Treasure Island. And they said, go to a, a, a potluck that very night at, a, at some uh, little church over by the uh, Golden Gate Park, which I did, not really knowing what I was doing, just following instructions. And as I describe it in my memory, (laughs) I I walked in the front doors and uh, there was a whole sea of people, but but the sea parted. (laughs) And there at the far end of the room was this very short little lady that I seemed to just walk straight up to and say hello. And that was you. And uh, Mm -hmm. you were... There, as part of the War Resisters League, support. It's so
1: interesting. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, we were deep into resisting, resisting the draft, resisting the war. We figured if if there were no soldiers, no people willing to go and kill people, then we wouldn't have wars. So we were trying to invite young men to think about where where they were going when they went into the induction center to sign up. And then people like you who were already COs, you were a conscientious objector, right?
0: Not COs officially. Status. When I got drafted, uh, I was in Chicago when my dad called and said, you've got your draft notice. I was on my way to Yale Divinity School and I was sure I had a deferment wow. for that, but I evidently did not because I got my draft notice. So I went back home and talked to my dad and we decided I'd volunteer for the Navy and when I did, I decided to go to corpsman school. That suited me. And while there, they changed some of the policy and said that hospital corpsmen, who are the medics for the Marines in the field, were starting to be required to carry guns. And all my life, I had said, well, I I just don't carry a gun. I I don't do that. (laughs) And Thus began a process of trying to let them know I'd work anywhere they wanted, but I just wouldn't carry a gun. And of course, they said, well, you know, you have to do it anyway. But I didn't have to do it anyway. There were ways to uh, use the system or work with the system. And uh, even though it required some AWOL time and some brig time, you know, that was great uh, compared to sacrificing your values. And you were exactly. very uh, instrumental in being support, you and Paul and, and your two teenage kids and folks in the area.
1: Right. And then did you just did you get a, a discharge after your time in the brig?
0: Did- well, uh, after two AWOLs and two court martials and uh, uh, brig time, I went to the clinic one day and the doctor said, don't you want to get out of here. (laughs) I think he (laughs) saw that I was a little depressed. And I said, well, yeah. And uh, two weeks later, I walked out with an honorable discharge. And uh, I I wish I knew who the guy was, but uh, very wow!
1: Yeah. Was it like a medical discharge? You were in the brig at the time. I
0: was in the brig. Uh, Yeah. Well, it, it probably was supposed to be a medical discharge, but as I walked down the row of, we called them yeoman, the, the secretary guys in the in the office area on discharge day, they handed me a paper in that little box. It said, honorable for discharge. And I said, thank you. And
1: <laughs> <laughs> You didn't stop to ask questions. No, of, oh.
0: course, of course not. Yeah. Uh. You had a little time in jail, maybe yourself, you were over at Oakland.
1: Um, well, many times in jail, but the, the, that was the first one was uh, was in Oakland, sitting in the doorways of the induction center with um, there were several doorways. So I wasn't in the doorway with Joan Bias. She was in another doorway <laughs> with her mother and her sister. But I spent 10 days in jail with her and several you know and about 50 or 60 other women and it was kind of like summer camp and <laughs> she sang songs but we did we were compliant we worked with the with the system we all were given jobs but it was you know we were in a great big dormitory together and it was a, a place where revolutions get fomented but the system doesn't know that <laughs> anyway we, I met several lifelong friends in that period, in, the, in those 10 days. But then, you know, that demonstration was so successful that WRL, the War Resist League, mounted another, let's do Christmas in jail. And so we mounted another huge sit-in demonstration for December 18th. So that whoever was arrested was going to end up spending Christmas in jail. And because I had teenage kids, I did not intend to be arrested. But, because, but David did. My 14-year-old son insisted on doing it. He said, if you did it, I can do it. And so he sat in a line of people blocking an induction bus on the street. And I watched that. I was watching sort of like a monitor watching the thing, but I wasn't intending to be arrested. And I yelled out, David, you're a beautiful kid. And then these two plainclothes officers just pulled me up under my arms and carted me off. You're under arrest. Whoa. So I was arrested for aiding and abetting an illegal demonstration. 10 days in jail later, I had to get out because my daughter, my 13 year old daughter was standing in the crowd there. (laughs) And um, I said, you've got to let me go. I've got to give my car keys to somebody to give my daughter. Anyway, I bailed out at the, which in a way I'm sorry, I did, but my son was arrested and my daughter (laughs) was standing there in the crowd. So they carted me off to jail, but I, I got out and had a court date down the line, and during that the months between that arrest and when I actually showed up to serve my time, which was 10 days, I ended up realizing that I did not want to cooperate with the system, so I showed up because I said I would, but I then refused to do anything except tell them my name. I was happy to say my name and maybe where I lived, but I wasn't going to fill out papers or be fingerprinted. And if they wanted me to change my clothes, and undress, they had to do it. So that's what happened. Anyway, I spent those 10 days in jail and that started a long career of protests and going to spending time in jail and fasting. I always fasted in jail. Wow. And I think I think right now, non-cooperation with the system is probably the only thing that could save us mm. from chaos and fighting in the streets and civil war. I'm, I'm talking about worst case scenarios around the election, ah. I learned about that. And, uh, you know, I hear people talking about going out in the streets with your the arms raised is just going to mm. create chaos and death. <laughs> but if you, if, if everybody who objected to what's going on would just go peacefully and sit, just not go to work, but go, go sit in the plaza and say, we want peace. We want order mm-hmm. and so forth.
0: Historically, way before those days, did you have some Way of uh, seeing yourself as a pacifist, or what was the evolution to get you to even the War Resisters League?
1: Well, that's that's a really profound question. Um, I mean, the immediate thing was that that Paulo Bluda had found the War Resisters League and and gave me the the obvious uh, intro to it, which I've already said, like if. The place, you follow things back to the source. And the way war happens is that there are people willing to go kill people. So if you can stop that stream of young men, then that's a way to stop war very directly. But I don't know. I think because I had a big brother who beat up on me, who teased me and tormented me all through my childhood, he also loved me. But he treated me like a possession (laughs) or like a bug, (laughs) something he could push and poke. And Mm -hmm. I was in a double bind because if I told on him, as we said as kids, then he would get whipped or punished and I would feel hurt. I didn't want that. So I took the brunt of it, Uh, but I don't know why I was that way, except that I grew up that we were in the south and i knew that that segregation was wrong and i always felt empathic with the colored people and the poor people and the downtrodden i remember when gandhi died i took it very personally and i don't know how i knew but i just did i just from as far back as i can remember I didn't like violence. Oh, I remember seeing, you know, the Chinese-Japanese War was happening in the late 30s. And I remember seeing of a little baby, of a, like an infant on the railroad tracks in a total scene of devastation. And it was horrifying to me. And that's war. And then Second World War, we got, my brother and I got sent to the bombing and war. And I was horrified by that. I never liked slapstick, you know, people throwing pies in people's faces and tripping people, all that sort of stuff. I always felt horrible to me. So I don't know why, but that's just my nature (laughs) is peaceful.
0: So from 68, I knew of you being part of not just yoga, but Different kinds of um, practices that you involved yourself with.
1: Well, I continued supporting draft resistance until my kids didn't want to be in the city anymore. There was a big back to the land movement in the late 60s, early 70s. So I continued to do protests and march walks, long walks for people who were in trouble with the military and in support of draft resistance and then we bought land in the country in 1970 because my kids wanted to go back to the land my daughter wanted to learn how to grow vegetables and she wanted a goat so we bought a piece of land um, in southern oregon and that's what happened and, and then the house burned down. <laughs> and and uh, back, I went back to the, the Bay Area and I was involved in an esoteric teaching for some years. But then in the 80s, uh, we thought the world was going to be blown up by atomic bombs. And I got involved again in direct action against uh, the first one was in 81 against the Diablo Canyon nuclear power plant. That was a fabulous event. And there were many more. I took a group of people to a protest at Lawrence Livermore Labs on Mother's Day. And we went up to the Trident Bangor Naval Base when the first Trident nuclear submarine came in. And we were a little troop of nonviolent believers who were going to stop, like David and Goliath, we were going to stop this huge submarine in the Hood Canal, and we were, you know, we were ready to give up our lives because this nuclear submarine could could blow up half of the world. Mm-hmm. I mean, it was terrible, and we were in fear. We really thought nuclear war was imminent, so we were willing to give our lives for it. I don't think we thought we were going to, but we we did anyway. We spent. several weeks up there and then we went out in little rowboats deployed from a larger from the pacific peacemaker and tried to stop the submarine and we woke a lot of people up with this kind of action and then later i think those protests various nuclear protests continued in the early 80s and then we went off traveling and but then when i came back there were the forest issues. There were, they were cutting redwoods. And it was all part of the same uh, corporate military industrial complex. And it felt like the same evil forces were destroying the world that I wanted, the peaceful world. And so I put a lot of energy into that kind of protest also, of trying to save forests in the late 80s and in the 90s.
0: I think I should probably tell the audience that uh, you were chained to what? The bumper of a logging truck. Just the rear, the back of a
1: log truck Mm -hmm. with a kryptonite bicycle lock and a whole bunch of young people. That was a protest against salvage logging because it was illegal. It went against environmental laws that were in place, and they would just you know, make up laws <laughs> that violated laws that were in place in order to rip off the forest. And the young people at that time were really, really angry. And I joined that particular protest in an attempt to teach them about nonviolence. <laughs> <laughs> but I wasn't so successful. I saw the films of it later of the leader talking to the truck driver. And I had told him about being polite. And, you know, the guy's just doing his job, but we have to tell him we're doing our job to resist these evil, illegal actions. And I can't say, you told me I mustn't cuss. So. <laughs> I can't tell you how he spoke to the driver, but I realized I was a total failure. But for some reason, that picture of a 67-year-old woman just went viral. And I've had a lot of notoriety from, from having done that as if it was something special. But it was just the next thing I needed to do.
0: Just a, a day in the life of Dot Fisher-Smith. Yeah. That reminds me that someone made a, a film of you. And I think the name of it is called, what, An Ordinary Life? Is that correct? Yep.
1: People can watch it on uh, Vimeo. Yeah, An Ordinary Life.
0: Okay, Vimeo, right.
1: Yeah, it's a almost a half an hour in order to make it fit, fit into the proper slot for the Ashland Independent Film Festival. Came along at a very fortunate time when I looked back because my son, David, was ill and dying and all that process was happening at the same time this film was, the documentary was being made. So I was, had the distraction. It was kind of like I had something to hold on to while he was dying and then his death and our grief became part of the documentary mm. so and willow the, the the documentarians went and did an interview with david about me and so i have this hour long interview of david talking about his childhood and Oh, wow. She was a great mother. She always said she was a terrible mother, but da, da, da. anyway, it's really sweet. So that for me, that's the best part.
0: Oh, indeed. That
1: I, that wow. I have that.
0: Yeah, David uh, for me was the the gentle giant of a man. <laughs> I, I was in awe of decisions that he would make that I would question, but in essence, they were good decisions. I, I just was scared to death
1: <laughs> to yeah. make
0: a similar decisions. Uh, Do
1: you have an example? Are you talking about when
0: When? When he was? The simplest decision, which I probably could have done was after the fire, uh, we needed a place to live. That was me and Bridget and, and David. And oh, uh, yeah. there was this old abandoned bus uh, that some people had come through years before, I don't know when, and, and just left it there. And it was kind of fitted out for living in. Had a lock on the back door, and the, the lock didn't last long after that. And we went in, and we, that's where we lived. Okay, the, so
1: that's the period you're talking about when you knew David. Yeah.
0: Yeah. And then the time that, uh, I don't know where the bread truck came from. That David? was
1: Marilyn and, and her husbands. They drove that bread truck from Minnesota.
0: Oh, okay. Yeah. Well, for some reason, David, and I was a passenger, uh, maybe someone else was a passenger, maybe Bridget. He drove the bread truck on this seemingly one lane logging road carved out of the side of a mountain. and we went along this narrow, narrow road and I was like, <laughs> And we were going to Maryland's uh, place, but I didn't I didn't understand all the dynamics of what was happening. I just remember his resolve and uh, skill in, in taking on that particular project. <laughs> oh, wow. I
1: wonder if that was you were going down Lower Wolf Creek Road to the Great to Grave Creek, because Marilyn and her husband or partner, Terry, lived lived almost like ten miles down that road, almost at Grave Creek.
0: Yeah, probably so. Yeah. Yeah.
1: I don't know how he had the truck though.
0: That's oh, yeah. yeah that's, that's the the curiosity too. But hey. great mysteries, yes. <laughs>
1: <laughs> mysteries, yeah. memories past.
0: I love that young man. So I was in and out of Wolf Creek, Oregon. Uh, you were uh, somewhat in and out of it at different times. You had a little cabin up in the the woods, and um, various things happened in your life. You needed a retreat place. Uh, Anything you want to share about
1: that? And I lived there until 1972. And gradually that fall, that was the fall of 1970. I started taking precious things out of the house up to my cabin. So I did save a few things before the house burned down. And I stayed until the summer or the spring of 72. And then I left and went back to live in the
0: Bay Area. So you came back to uh, the Bay Area, but then somehow you went back to, up to Oregon to Ashland.
1: <laughs> Many stops along the way. <laughs> I re-met John who had been a neighbor that I met when the time was right. And it was 82 when we, completely moved here. We were coming and going for a couple of years. Mm -hmm. Spring of 80, either 81 or
0: 82. So uh, how have you made Ashland, Oregon more humane (laughs) by your presence?
1: (laughs) (laughs) Well, um, we started Peace House. We started an organization We made Ashland a nuclear free zone. I went to demonstrations. We went to the Trident. We did a lot of peaceful uh, actions, but making Ashland a nuclear free zone was pretty good and and educating people about uh, the nuclear danger and then forest preservation. But we started an organization called Peace House I was one of the, a co-founder of that organization and it was really someone else's idea, dream idea but I helped bring it about and we did that together and it's still coming 30 years later. And that's a good thing.
0: That's a good thing, yes.
1: That's a really good thing. And you know, I've been involved, we we did peace vigil Way back then in the, in the early 80s, a weekly or monthly vigil where we would walk from the library down Main Street with candles and then be in the center of the square. I brought Joanna Macy to Ashland to do a despair and empowerment workshop in 1986. And her work, the work that reconnects was called The Great Turning. And now it's called The Work That Reconnects is still a very powerful tool. For people wanting to make the world more humane, mm-hmm. to Joanna build up. Macy
0: and and is does she have a new book? You're saying
1: called she has. Oh, she has lots of books that she's oh, written. Oh. She has a website that people can go to that has resources, amazing documents from indigenous, from the nations on the east coast that were peaceful about governance and peaceful ways of living. And the work that reconnects is about making a more humane world that's based on life-giving, life-enhancing practices rather than life-destroying practices like the global growth economy. I, I don't have her proper language in my head right this minute. My mind is too full of things. <laughs> Her website is full of beautiful, beautiful writings and references to other writings and and her writings. And there was a very recent one, a little essay by her that is on, will be on her website about the pandemic and the situation that we're in right now. I think her website is Joanna But huh. if you just put in Joanna Macy, you'll get her website with Remarkable stuff on it.:
0: Thank you. Thank you. What a great uh, She's a
1: she's a, Buddhist, a Buddhist scholar and a systems theory scholar. and she also, with Anita, a woman named Anita Barrows, has translated Rilke's uh, poems and written a lot about Rilke.: All right. So she's very broad in her, in her scholarly work. and she's very human too. she's she knows how to be angry at the right times we were at the world trade organization together and she a policeman was being very rude there we were standing behind the lines and and she turned to him and she said don't talk to me like that i'm old enough to be your grandmother
0: (laughs) (laughs) wonderful you still ride your bike?
1: Yeah, sort <laughs> of. Yes, I am. I, I, My bike got stolen. I don't want to go into the whole bike story. But yes, I have been. I did. I, did uh, I mean, if we're talking about, you know, that sort of stuff. I did a two-night solo backpack trip this summer on Mount Shasta. Oh.
0: So, yeah. and then, yeah. I think people are getting a little bit of an idea that you're not really a spring chicken. Do you mind telling us uh, about how old you are? <laughs> about? I'm old. And Well, you know, I'm, some people say 80-something or 70-something or...
1: No, I finished my 92nd year. My 92nd birthday was June 26 so i'm in my 93rd year now
0: Uh and you did two backpacking trips on mount shasta this last summer
1: no just uh, i did a two i did a two night just i went for two nights by myself um, it's really a very easy hike into where i went to south. It's called Southgate Meadows and a beautiful, beautiful Alpine Creek. And you're right under the under the rocky part, the upper reaches at 8,000, a little over 8,000 feet
0: mm-hmm.
1: on the side of Mount Shasta.
0: So this reminds me that you used to do what's called trekking over in uh, N- Nepal, Ladakh. Do-
1: mm-hmm. Yeah, both. And Tibet, we did we did a circumambulation called the Kora around Mount Kailash, the sacred mountain in Tibet. So, that's that was like the wildest, most strenuous of many many hikes. Because I worked, I did work making the world more humane. I hope in Ladakh for um, many summers, I went and worked with Helen and Orbert Hodge. Uh, who founded the Ladakh project? Uh, working to help the Ladakhi people appreciate their own culture, because they were, they have been kind of their culture has been destroyed by, by the Indian army and by globalization. You know, by corporate takeover of the world, and it's very sad because their, their customs were very beautiful. So I coordinated a farm project of bringing people from other parts of the world, from the more first world countries, to work on Ladakhie farms, hmm. to help those people appreciate what they had. And, you know, so they weren't wanting to try to help them appreciate what, they, what their culture had. Uh, kind of a losing battle <laughs> against the onslaught of television and yeah. and uh, plastic and mm. all those things.
0: So invasive, it just uh, <laughs> I do a little uh, walk uh, Monday through Friday mornings uh, in a neighborhood around the school where I taught here in Gypsy. And part of that walk goes, by a new called a splash park for kids uh, that the parks and rec had put up and i I carry with me a couple of plastic bags and a a little picker upper every morning i will nearly fill up a plastic bag of litter and this is a small little place and it's just uh if that happens in a a beautiful a little park in the middle of Missouri uh, capital, uh, it, it just goes everywhere. And it, right. we, we need to raise our consciousness. <laughs> How do we raise people's consciousness, Dot?
1: It's not easy.
0: Yeah. It's not easy. Have you come across any uh, particular? Um, Miraculous ways of uh, doing that. <laughs> <laughs>
1: well, I've talked about all the no. You, know, I think, only by only by example and people seeing what how you're behaving and and uh, you know being inspired. Yeah. well I mean, my my bicycle riding. I think my being using only my bike most of the time Mm -hmm. for local errands and stuff i think that was a huge teaching because people know me and they say oh you're so inspiring and it was it's a very strong message Mm -hmm. about using your own power and not depending on fossil fuels and anything that you can do Uh, that are visible like that i mean i think riding a bicycle and walking to do your errands instead of driving is one really big thing that people can do
0: and you lived for and
1: not and not buying you know not buying not doing mail order not buying things from amazon but uh, shopping and buying things locally supporting your local economy instead of supporting big corporations there you go let your money speak let your money carry your message not buying things and not buying things in plastic in cartons but the the irony is and this i didn't want to get into on the for the public um i'm just appalled when i think about not just this facility, this senior living facility, but all over the country and probably all over the world where people aren't eating in the dining rooms because of the pandemic and meals are being delivered to people's rooms in, in styrofoam and plastic Mm -hmm. and the garbage is just, you know, it's horrifying. Mm -hmm. It's just horrifying. Mm
0: -hmm. And And where did you? where does it go
1: the dump the landfill but like in volumes like you know 100 times worse
0: yeah, yeah. cuz
1: each institution is doing 10 times the garbage that it used to right and nobody everybody hates it nobody likes it but there's nothing you know
0: the following the rules I think your words are um, striking the heart of many of us.
1: I hope so. In the, in the end, that's all we can do is live our lives in the, in the most righteous way that we know how and that we can do. And talk to other people about it. Put your money in the credit union. Don't just avoid, avoid evil. <laughs> you know, avoid uh, profit making endeavors and go for life enhancing endeavors put your money where your mouth is
0: i i forgot to mention or ask about a, a little period of your life when you would put on a an amazing outfit at a buddhist i'm not sure what the building is called ashram and you... No, 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 no.
1: Zen center.
0: Zen. Well, that's Buddhist, Zen Buddhist, right?
1: My ashram is in the Indian, in other, other traditions.
0: Okay. I stand corrected.
1: My, my lineage is the Soto Zen, in the Japanese tradition of
0: Zen Buddhism. You took me to some kind of a practice in Mill Valley, California where I went in and sat quietly and a a man went around with a stick and uh, encouraged people to stay focused. (laughs) Well,
1: Well, that's a tiny little fraction of of what the practice is about. So uh, I don't remember taking you in Mill Valley.
0: Uh, Yes, uh, maybe. Maybe uh, Patricia, I'm not sure, but one of you got me to this place. And it was, it was interesting. Um, And then I visited you in Ashland, Oregon, when you were, there's a name for your role uh, in the Zen um, sitting that uh, was done at, at the place in Ashland. What, what was your role? You were the
1: not the docent, but... Uh. No, no, it's it's the title, the Japanese word is Eno. I was the person who took care of the meditation hall, of wow. the meditation space. Mm-hmm. Yeah, but I also, that job <clears throat> included being there at 5.30 in the morning in my robes, in my meditation robes, a black robe, that you called an outfit. <laughs> <laughs> it was my, it was my robes. So I, I had to be there at 525, I think, and be prepared to open the Zendo. The sitting place is called Zendo. Zen. Um,
0: mm-hmm. Zendo. Yes.
1: The the place of doing Zen.
0: Okay. The
1: Zendo. And, um, and welcome the priest when they came and welcome the students and then you know just be in charge so i had to be sure there was incense and candles and everything was in its proper place mm-hmm. and that that was my job for like a, almost 2 years
0: big commitment and
1: that was just before going to do the kora around to do the trek around mount kailash and when I did that, came back. I knew, I knew, I had sort of done my PhD in Zen <laughs> to to get myself over that eighteen thousand five hundred foot pass.
0: Wow!
1: It was very strenuous, and uh, so I did continue sitting for no, with the Zen Center for another year and a half maybe and then i decided i was i didn't want to be part of a formal organization anymore no. so i left mm-hmm. and i just do my practice kind of secretly in the world not secretly openly but not you know not i don't wear robes mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and i don't i don't call myself a buddhist mm-hmm.
0: Mm-hmm. i don't,
1: i don't like labels
0: Okay. And uh, as you're speaking, I'm visualizing a row of women on the main street next to Lithia Park. Right.
1: Women in black. Women in black. Yeah, we did that for quite a few years. Every Friday from 12, we would stand on the plaza wearing black in silence. Yeah, that's a very strong statement. I think putting your, putting your body somewhere, I, I would encourage people to be creative because there's many different things. Each one of us may have some particular thing we're concerned about, like trash or styrofoam or something else for somebody else, um, a piece. And you think of a way to express that in words. I mean, people, I'm thinking of friend Peavy, who went to uh, Moscow and sat in the square with a sign that said, American, willing to talk. And I've often thought of going and sitting in the plaza with a sign, whatever your thing is that you want to say or ask, um, or, you know, put up leaflets or. There's there's lots and lots of visible ways that you people can express their concerns, mm-hmm. and there's all the very personal ones like just examine what you where where you put your energy in the world. What do you want to support? Take care of poor people, of people with no homes.
0: Yeah, and Ashlyn, the homeless. Uh... Situation is like in most every town. Uh, that's yeah. high.
1: and people are coming up with a lot of creative ideas. A, a woman who's running for mayor in Ashland got a grant to refurbish a school bus and make it a home for someone, mm-hmm. and did that. And other people are making little, you know, tiny houses. Mm-hmm. And uh, there's a church in Medford. That, is, that has started a whole big organization to create um, a little homeless, a village. So a lot of good things are happening along with some unfortunate things because a lot of the unhoused people were living along the greenway who and have no place to go since the fire destroyed that area. Mm. So that's big issues here. We have lots of big issues about affordable housing, you know. so.
0: Have you uh, come across Phil Johncock in Ashland?
1: Oh, yes. Yes, he, he was, he sort of at one point came in and was, was very much part of the, the shelter program of the, that the churches were doing. Yeah, and I don't know where he fits in now because we in Ashland finally managed to get uh, one place. A church out a little out of town. So our capacity in Ashland has improved a lot as far as taking care of the unhoused people. And whether he's still involved in that, I don't know.
0: Well, I'm at, I met Phil through uh, Gene Houston, who lives in Ashland. Uh,
1: I figured, yeah.
0: Mystery school and social artistry work. And uh, he uh, moved to Ashland himself just uh, at the time that you say he started working with the shelters.
1: Oh, I wish I had known that. I would have told him we were buddies,
0: you and I. Yeah.
1: <laughs> well, I haven't been. Yeah.
0: I just got an email from him today, so I'll let him know about this. Uh, uh,
1: oh, good. Opportunity
0: to listen to you. <laughs> yeah.
1: We he was very busy. Uh, I went to several meetings at the library when he first uh, took over that that coordination job, um, and I was I used to do overnights at the shelter at the Episcopal Church and at the uh, community center, uh, Pioneer Hall. Uh, but that's like I haven't done that for the last couple of years because John's my husband required more attention than. I anyway, and our whole life situation changed. So,
0: so Dot, uh, there used to be a, a yurt that uh, was somewhere around your house there in, in Ashland. And as I recall, you took pieces from that material that the yurt was made, a canvas kind of material, and you started doing artwork and have created a, an amazing array of uh, uh, pieces that uh, you had an art show in, in Ashland. Can you talk a little bit about the inspiration for the style and the uh, process that you? you just...
1: Okay, I've I've written so many uh, uh, artist statements about that, uh, <laughs> and I I have uh, one of the oldest ones on the wall here. That, that I actually sold from that first show I had. And actually, some of my work was gonna be in an exhibit at the Schneider Museum on the university campus this spring. That's one of the tragedies of the pandemic, that it was gonna be a big gala, a whole summer uh, exhibit on um, celebrating Tzitzkiu National Monument. And my work, I was going to have a whole room in the back of the thing, and it all got condensed gradually. It was postponed, then it, was, then it was, went virtual, and, and my work, he only chose five pieces of mine, and it was, they were terrible. He had taken the pictures um, when he first came to our house to look at the work, uh, to see whether he wanted it, and told me he was going to use it. And he, but he just took snapshots. Yeah, I mean, he took pictures and that was all he had then to put in this exhibit because the pandemic, it was the early, anyway. So it was a huge disappointment Mm. for me, you know, not to to have that, that would have been wonderful. So just, um, and I've gone over this so many, so many millions of times, the we had to put a new cover on the yurt because the cow broke a hole in it mm-hmm. and the this canvas had beautiful markings from nature from the wind and moss and it was beautiful and i only i started making hangings just with quotes with zen quotes on it and gradually i started playing with putting stones and other Collaging pieces on it and then then I began to, to to see mountains and rivers and nature coming out of the canvas and I just started teasing shapes out and. Uh, and it felt later I called I called that work uh, inner ology <laughs> because it felt like I was had had taken in with my eyes. beauty all the shape of nature and eaten them consumed them and assimilated them into my body and then they came out through my fingers and my eyes bringing uh, bringing those shapes out of the canvas so that they're abstract but they're not they're they're mountains they're mountains and hills but they're also rocks and grass and clouds and Everything.
0: So you used brushes. Huge
1: meditation. It's a meditation.
0: Mm -hmm. So you used brushes? uh...
1: No, no. I happen to have a a huge uh, set of French pastels from probably around 1900 Mm -hmm. um, that were John's grandfather's or grandmother's, Mm. and. They were their portrait pastels, French portrait pastels. And that's what I had. And that's part of, oh, maybe I could have should have said more about that, about waste not want not. You know, I don't buy things. I, I don't buy art supplies. I use what's around. So this is what I had. Who whoever used pastel on canvas? Yeah. <laughs> Nobody but me, if that's what I had and colored pencils. I had colored pencils and I had pens. So is it ink? Oh, and pencils, graphite, a lot of graphite. So I gradually teased the shapes out that just they're there and I watched them appear.
0: So we've had about a, an hour here. Is there some stuff that you'd like to sort of put out as you're uh, parting? Uh, wisdom to the listeners of the world.
1: I think I've said it all, Dick. I think I've. I think I've. I've. I hope that I've said clearly. We. It's from. I love your phrase from the inside out, and I think that's how it has to work. We each have to examine our own conscience and see if our if our behavior, if the medium really is the message, if, uh, if we behave in the way that we think and speak and it all has to be congruent. Gandhi said, the means must be consistent with the end. So we can't talk about being kind and peaceful if we're angry and violent. I mean, of course, we're all angry and violent at times, but our behavior in the world is a demonstration of our beliefs and of how we have to be the way we want the world to be. We have to act the way we want the world to act.
0: Thank you. You've been a, a mother, a friend, a, a confidant, a, all kinds of things to me in my life. And I, I just want you to know I dearly appreciate you and, and I love you so much. and. So glad well, that you agreed to do this. When
1: I first met you, I saw I saw your clear light and your spirit of love and generosity of spirit and um, honorableness. That's what I what I remember that you were so young and you were you were an idealist you lived i mean you're such a perfect example of someone who lived your convictions you would rather go to jail than carry a gun and that's that upright honorableness um and just goodness you're from missouri you know (laughs) i i i have great respect i have two or three other people I know, from Missouri, who have that quality, just, you know, true, just true and good. True blue. Where did true blue come from? That's not political, is it? What is, I don't know. Like We're the real- <laughs> sky. Must the true blue, like the sky. Our sky here is sort of pale, pale gray, smoke, smoke colored. Oh, wow. But anyway, you, that's how I've always seen you as somebody who is like, upright and honorable and loyal and true and a real friend
0: thank you dot indeed so with that i will say to the listeners uh, remember friends wherever you are that is your world please (laughs) leave your world cleaner more peaceful and more loving than you found it Because if it is to be, it is up to us. Take care and talk to you soon.